Welcome to Buddha at the Gas Pump. My name is Rick Archer. Buddha at the Gas Pump is an ongoing series of interviews with spiritually awakening people. There have been over 370 of them by now. So if this is new to you, please go to batgap.com, B-A-T-G-A-P, and check out the past interviews menu where you'll find them all organized and categorized in various ways. This program is made possible by the support of appreciative viewers and listeners. So if you appreciate it and feel like supporting it to whatever degree, there's a donate button on the site. My guest today is Jim Tolls. Jim is a spiritual teacher who helps people to grow, heal, and embrace their spiritual paths. Uh, Jim had a spiritual awakening in August of 2007, which we'll be talking about, and has been through an inner roller coaster ride of healing and spiritual growth. I'm obviously reading what he sent me to read, <laughs> dropping away issues as he has moved more deeply into peace and love. The greatest of the shifts came in the fourth, fifth, and sixth years after awakening and truly consumed his life during those times. The intensity of the energy has since subsided into a more relaxed inner flow. Jim continues to grow and be guided by the divine flow while also relaxing into the beautiful oneness and perfection of each moment. Jim teaches his students that we all have our truth and love within us by pointing students toward their innate divine oneness. He offers tools to help people cut away their lies and misconceptions so that they can be more firmly rooted in truth and love. He works with students on an individual basis via Skype, as well as offering free online talks via live streaming on YouTube. So welcome, Jim. Yeah, thank you for having me, Rick. Did it ever occur to you that if you dropped the S and affected a German accent, you could pass yourself off as Eckert's brother and be what, much more <laughs> successful? <laughs> no, but it'd be kind of a fun experiment, I suppose. <laughs> yeah. So I read a, a bunch of articles that you had written, and I, and I listened to several hours of your recordings. And there are several things that I didn't hear that I, I usually hear when I do that with people. So I'm going to ask you those things. Um, the first is, who, who was your teacher or teachers? Who were they? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I really didn't have a teacher. Mm -hmm. uh, I've always been very intuitive, and there's always been kind of this inner interest in spirituality. And so while I've learned to like pull from a lot of different traditions, grew up with Christianity and you know, learned about Buddhism, and I've connected with different teachers at different times. I've read Eckhart Tolle's work. I've read Samadhi Shanti. And a lot of those different things. There's just a part of me that just kind of kept finding those little pieces mm -hmm. and then kind of taking me on to the next step. So I never really found a need to, to have a long-term teacher. Uh, I connected with Satri for a little while through emails and things like that. And, and then, you know, things kind of concluded, and I just kept following this inner flow. And that's really kind of how I approach the spiritual path when I'm connecting with my students is to help them find that innate wisdom. Uh, obviously, as a spiritual teacher, I find some value in, you know, that vocation. But ultimately, everyone really does have their truth within them. And so to me, it's a great thing when I can help a student get to the point where they don't need me, where I become kind of obsolete because they can feel whatever they need and the whole world starts to become their teacher. Yeah, a lot of teachers do say that, that, you know, I want to get you to the point where you don't need me. Mm -hmm. um, did you do any practices, any kind of meditation or yoga or any other sort of things on a regular basis? No, I really didn't. There are kind of three 
pieces that I really look at is that finally got me kind of moving in October of 2006 because mm -hmm. I was pretty well stuck. But if you talked to me at the time, I wouldn't have thought that I was stuck. You know, that's mm -hmm. the nature of ignorance and that's such a, a huge hurdle to, to overcome. And so the three things really were I started to have somebody that I could talk to about uh, spirituality and, and those types of things outside of my family, which is where, you know, there were some discussions, but not a lot. Uh, I was actually following my heart. I was trying to get into a creative writing uh, degree for a master's, which I ultimately didn't get into, which was ultimately really good that I didn't get into those programs that I applied to. But I find that it was a really important actualization, a, a step of action, you know, for my heart to do something, to try and move me in a certain way. And that's actually when I first started listening to Eckhart Tolle's CDs in earnest. Now, I actually listened to him a little bit several years ago, and I was like, well, this makes sense to me, and I put them down, right? It didn't resonate. I wasn't open enough to it. And so I feel like those three kind of forces kind of started moving me a little bit. Mm -hmm. And then I kind of got to that point, and this I definitely credit to the beautiful work of Eckhart Tolle, is where I'm sitting in the office and I'm angry about something. You know, it's just ridiculous, whatever it was I would have been angry about. And I realized that nobody had talked to me that day. Nobody had done anything to me that day. And it was just me making myself miserable. Mm. And so this is where I really start to work on myself. I say, well, this is a good job I'm in. What, why am I upset? What is the problem here? And I start to kind of work on myself. And that kind of starts a little bit of a flow to, to moving into issues and to, to self-discovery. And so that's that's all before uh, the 2007 August when I, I have my awakening. Yeah. What was your job, just out of curiosity? I was a managing editor. Of so, a newspaper or magazine or something? It was an internet company. Internet and company. so, okay. yeah, I mean, I was very fortunate. I've always loved writing. I, I see that as a big, important piece. It's kind of been a saving grace to keep me close enough to my heart, even as I was very shut down yeah. for a lot of my life. And so managing editor was one of the ways where I got to do that. Yeah, you're a good writer. I read a lot of your blog posts. Although you. you need a copy editor. I, I caught typos. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, okay. So you, you had a spiritual awakening in 2007. Um, what, how would you characterize it? I, I mean, you know, we could perhaps talk about this a little bit because people talk about awakening as if everyone understands it in the same way and is right. is you right. you know saying the same thing but i don't think there are there's all kinds of things that people actually allude to as awakening so what did you experience yeah i mean i, I think you know just stepping back you know i'll just define my terms and people can accept them or not it's up to you um what i see as all of us that are interested in spirituality being on is the conscious path that's in our everyday life becoming more aware of ourselves and letting go of attachments right so there's kind of a spectrum of movement on that and sometimes that's how people use awakening it's not how i'm using awakening but to me that's where we ultimately all go if we really embrace the spiritual path is to get to know ourselves better to let go of pain to open our hearts to be clear to be connected uh, with awakening to me that's like that space of oneness that's always there and that a spiritual awakening the way i term it is just kind of this noticing what's already there and then something in the human self kind of becomes alive, energized, and starts to move on its own. So more typically, you're going to hear me talk about in the sense of movement, that it keeps moving, and it's not necessarily one experiential state. Usually, most of us get some sort of little nudge from the divine saying, hey, something's different. So we feel really peaceful or very loving or very blissful. Uh, we feel very clear about the truth. Uh, we feel very whole. Right? Those tend to be 
kind of the, the initial experiences that arise out of the awakened space, which is always with us, but not always. Uh, every now and then I have a few students come my way and they haven't gotten that at all. It's just something started moving and everything's kind of blowing up and they tend to be in a lot of pain. Uh, so sometimes they end up going to doctors, right? And, and the doctors say, well, we can't find anything wrong with you. And that's always important. I like to emphasize that, that we use all tools available to us. The doctors are an important part and we don't want to just jump ahead and say, oh, it's a spiritual awakening when it could be something that's actually uh, physically based. But there's been a couple of people come my way that they have that quality, but that inner movement is happening. Usually what works with them is doing that self-inquiry, starting to understand what's coming and joining with whatever is being brought up into their attention. And so the, the key distinction that I make with the spiritual awakening is that it moves on its own. Mm -hmm. And so in August of 2007, there have been little bursts and bits and pieces of things through the year that were leading up to that. And then I'm just lying on a bed and not a comfortable bed. It was too small for me. It's in Eugene, Oregon, and I'm just staring at the ceiling. In a motel room. Just, in a motel room. It was, it was not exciting at all. <laughs> not trying to do anything. And all the noise just stopped in my head. Mm. And all desire just, just went away. And it was kind of like that. I didn't have like a long experience with it uh, before I ran up against a whole bunch of fear and issues that I had to process. Of course, I didn't understand that at the time. But I just kind of wandered around Eugene, Oregon. A very quiet mind, no desire for anything. And how long did that last? Uh, maybe six hours, and then mm -hmm. then something kicked up inside me because I had just so much fear inside me, Rick. It's mm -hmm. just I was paralyzed for most of my life with fear, hmm. and I remember one of my first what I would call a spiritual opening. And so that to me is more typical of what happens for a lot of people where they get interested in the spiritual path is they have an opening, a sense of what's real, and then they have to really choose to go do something. And they're not usually being driven so hard by the inner world. And so I had a spiritual opening where I was out hiking with a friend and my brother. And, you know, it's just a regular hike, you know, I'm a 20 something, I'm in good shape, but it was so hard, Rick. I'm like, oh my God, I'm like pouring sweat. It's not that hot. And I kind of had a sense at that point that something kind of spiritual was going on. And I remember I'm like starting to climb. I was turned it from a hike to a climb in this really craggy, crappy rock, you know, the type of stuff that falls apart in your hands. And I'm just getting so scared. And it's the first time where I really feel an issue start to arise, right? So it's just kind of more this beautiful preparation, I think, for the work that was going to come for me. And then, you know, I'm sitting at this one point, I'm looking down, it looks bad, and I'm looking up, and it looks bad. I'm like, oh, God, and this fear is coming up in me. And actually, Eckhart totally really comes in handy at that point where, like, I, I just remembered that I just have to be super present. And so whenever I was climbing, I, would, I got so present, I could see every place I needed to put my hands. Hmm. And when I stopped, the, the fear would just kept rising up into my chest. And at one point, as I'm hiking, climbing up this stupid mountain in the middle of the desert, I just realized I'm going to start crying. And so all this emotion, all this fear comes out. Uh, and that's that's the first time I have a really big opening, really big clearing and healing. But I also was very clear in that moment how much more fear was inside. Hmm. And so that this wasn't like a, a moment where I had jumped to the conclusion, oh, I'm free of all things. That was June before the August awakening. And that really kind of informed me of what was ahead. Hmm. And then things just kind of start to create their own cycles. And I really am just being broken down internally. And at times, you know, as the years go ahead, I don't have much of energy, much energy at all to even get off the couch some days. 
I think the part of the reason that some people do scary, dangerous stuff, you know, like climbing or or ch real challenging sports type things, is it forces them to be in the present. You know, it's like mm -hmm. a do or die kind of a situation, and um, you know, it, and in a, in a way, it gives them a spiritual experience. Yeah, absolutely. But that was not the intent. And so for me, I mean, there's another way where I emphasize, like, it was really just following my own flow in life to trust where I was being drawn, because mm -hmm. it was taking me to all the things and places that I need to confront that I might not have done on my own. Like, I was not a thrill seeker person, not with that much fear stuck inside me. I was, I'd be very aversive to that type of a situation if I knew in advance what I was in for. So do you, do you, do you sort of look back now and have a sense of why you had so much fear all your life? Oh, yeah. Well, mm -hmm. can you give a reason to it? Well, I, I think it's a combination of upbringing and genetics mm -hmm. and society. And, you know, everybody has a different set of core issues that get clumped together that make us aversive to different things. Mm -hmm. uh, and so that's, that's really where most of us in our, in our work end up is back in childhood where just initial moments, it doesn't have to be like a huge trauma. Mm -hmm. It's just some subtle thing where you see it in the actions of the people around you, your caregivers, whoever they happen to be, uh, that they're scared of something. And you just you just start to mimic it. You start to believe it in a way that you don't even realize you're necessarily believing. Uh, and so this is kind of like a topic that I sent to you around like silent wounds. Like we don't yeah, have yeah. to be physically hurt. We don't even have to be, be yelled at or like have anything bad happen to be wounded in different ways. And they build up over time. Yeah, here, I mean, here's some points from that article. Um, silent wounds are not repressed trauma, learning to identify unhealthy patterns, keeping a journal, the family tradition of silent wounds, the repetitious nature of silent wounds, breaking out of generational pain, mm -hmm. um, and so on. So so I guess you're, you're implying that everyone carries these around. And yeah, you had a particularly generous um, dose of them <laughs> to deal with. Yes, I did. <laughs> yeah, yeah and, and I don't want to say, and I want to emphasize, it, it's not bad that we have them. Mm -hmm. right? This is kind of the nature of ignorance in the way that we just are, I think, are kind of evolving, that all these things kind of grew up on their own, and we didn't really know how to think about these things. And I think there's a way that there's a level of evolution in what we do in self-inquiry around how we can start to take apart in our ego selves versus just blindly believing that we believe what we believe, we are as we are. Starting to understand how much flexibility is there and how we can change the way our inner world is, is a very empowering thing. So is that what kind of dawned on you in August 2007 when you had that awakening? You, it was like a, a crack in the, in the wall of fear that had boxed you in over over the years and began to feel empowered not yet no oh, later <laughs> you know that that was that was really just the start yeah. and you know i started going through a, a long collapse i had a lot of pride too rick so mm -hmm. pride to me is one of the great hiders there's a couple of big hiders shame shame is always trying to hide our issues keep them out of sight pride is another one where we're trying to give a face to the world like hey look i'm strong look at me i'm jim tolls blah 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 <laughs> and that had to go <laughs> and, and and the inner divine in me and and god you know knew that that this had to start to break down for me to allow things to move and at the same point you know there's something about fear that's so constricting the walls are so tight in those places and so pride doesn't even let you look at that yeah and so there's a part that's breaking down another part leaving pride open but i don't really understand what kind of space i need or what specific tools 
I really kind of need to engage with it and how I'm going to do that. So I just kind of have a foot in both worlds for a while, for like three years. And those aren't comfortable times. I'm always happy when people come to me early on that I can encourage them to, to make space sooner than I did because, you know, there's nothing wrong with the jobs that I'm doing. It's just I've moved on and, and my energy isn't there. It doesn't want to do those things and it's, it's breaking me down internally. To, to open me up further to, to different levels of issues and to be a spiritual teacher. I mean, initially that whole idea scared the crap out of me. Yeah, uh, and I think part, teacher, of, yeah. Yeah, part of me knew how much work was going to have to go inside me so I can be clear to so many different types of people and so many different types of issues. Uh, so all of that kind of kept me like, well, let's just keep doing the technology thing. And I moved to San Francisco Bay Area and had a very hard year. Um, because a part of me was breaking open. I'm still trying to live a way that that's no longer truthful to me. Well, I think it's good not to rush into being a spiritual teacher. And I think, you know, some people do that and um, they should really, you know, cook for quite a few years, perhaps, before taking on that responsibility. That's um, a good word. Yeah. Cook. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's even uh, traditional in some traditions that, you know, you have a, a, an awakening, even a very profound abiding one, and you wait 10 years before you become a spiritual teacher. So, you know, there have been all sorts of messy situations where people have rushed into it. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, it's easy to become a wounded healer, you know, as a spiritual teacher, where you're still tending to your own wounds and you're trying to help others when you haven't addressed your own. Yeah. Now, that is not to say, as I believe you were saying, that you can't be a spiritual teacher and readily acknowledge that you're still a work in progress. Um, you know, but if I'm, I encounter people who have what I consider to probably be a fairly preliminary awakening and they think they're done. Or they, mm -hmm. you know, oh, they, yeah. they actually use the word enlightenment and <laughs> or perfection or something, and that kind of gives me the willies. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah I, mean, I, I totally understand that. And that's, I, I definitely have that cautionary tale with people who say, well, let's start with yourself. If you really want to be a teacher, you want to be a healer, that's wonderful. We need you. We emphatically need you yeah. in this world. You will not have a lack of work, unfortunately. It would be great if we did. It would be great. And I would just go live in the woods and I wouldn't do any more of this because everybody would just be kind. Mm -hmm. right? You, you just wouldn't think about hurting each other. You think about cooperating around difficulties. And we have genuine difficulties in this world we need to face. Mutations and disease, natural disasters, food shortages, water supply stuff. Like There are genuinely real issues without creating more. <laughs> and, and we do create more. So the emphasis is always go within, start with yourself. The more you start with yourself, if it's time for you to teach, different people kind of come your way. And definitely in my own teaching, you know, as I've grown, like different types of people would kind of come into my life and come out and come in and come out. Uh, for me, the bigger thing really was um, I claimed the space about three years later in October of 2010. And that was really just acknowledging to myself, this really is something that I need to do. But the bigger piece was starting to blog then. So um, wait a minute. I've, so when you say you claim the space, that means you kind of assume the the role of a spiritual teacher willingly or yeah. consciously. That's what you mean. Yeah. And, and I say it on my blog, right? It's, it's yeah. no longer just kind of hiding on the back of my head. And there was just so much energetic pressure once again that kind of pushes me into it. But the bigger piece was really the writing mm -hmm. that I, I wrote this ebook, uh, Everyday Spirituality, Cultivating an Awakening. And then, you know, I really started getting into the blog and, and developing that. And uh, that I think has been was the more important piece as opposed to just working with people. But, you know, each year was just very illuminating 
and the number of people I've taught. And it was just so divinely inspired because I wasn't like deluged with people to work with at first. It's like spirit knew how much I could handle. Yeah. And it's just like, you know, I'd have a couple here and a couple here, and then I'd go through a growth period and then I get a few more. And so this beautiful way that it's gradually expanded on its own. And so I feel very lucky uh, and cared for in that sort of way. Yeah. So you say you kind of claimed it, that um, uh, that role in 2010, which would have been three years after your awakening. But then you say that the greatest of shifts came in the fourth, fifth, and sixth years after awakening yeah. and truly consumed your life during those times. So yeah. can you give us some in detail about that? It, it's it's just so boring from the outside, but from the inside, you know, it's it's just so intense. It's just like you really are being cooked alive and just have so little energy for things. And because another aspect of that 2010 was just a deeper choosing of what was arising. So I really am turning towards this inner shifts, embracing this, this emerging light and the healing that's needed. Uh, and I still don't really have that great of a perspective on myself, but I'm getting better at that point where I'm starting to understand, okay, like I can feel some of these years ahead are actually going to be kind of difficult mm -hmm. because of the things that have to come up, but they're less difficult in those years because I'm surrendering to it. So I definitely have taken more of the, the road of hard knocks whenever I'm teaching. I'm trying to help people make it a lot easier on themselves than it was, you know, for me. Yeah. But I, yeah, you're just kind of lying on the couch and it's like things are coming up and you're just kind of burning through fears and other things. I, I think that there's a phenomenon where if you decide to take on the role of a spiritual teacher, uh, you know, it's like the divine says, okay, you want to do this? Then here you go. We're going we're gonna mm -hmm. to kind of... Um, you know, mold you and cook you and, you know, purify you so, you, so you can really do this more effectively. And um, so it really turns up the heat, you know. It absolutely does. And I would hope it does that for everyone uh, who wants to take on this role, because to your point, you can get yourself into some interesting places if, if you haven't really worked with your own issues, if you don't know what you're bringing into the room. And I usually have a sense of what I'm bringing into the room. And I'm very energetically sensitive so i have strong senses of how people feel and how that's interacting energetically with me mm -hmm. and so if i have too much issues inside of myself there's certain people i'm not going to be able to work with uh, and so that's why that sort of purification is so so important because it does get cloudy and messy for whoever you're working with and if you can't be clear in that space then it's just can get very confused yeah, and upset. blind leading the blind yeah so you're not using awakening in any kind of absolute final static No, sense. I don't use and, it in that way. And it's been nine years since your awakening. Um, so if you were to compare your subjective state now to what it was nine years ago, how would you compare it? So much freer. Just the peace with myself. Uh, there's intense fear and anger and restlessness uh, that was being hidden by pride. You know, So if we flash back to like... October 2005, you know, I wouldn't say that anything's wrong, but that's what's going on. Mm -hmm. And so now there's just a, a much deeper appreciation of flow yeah. that I'm really not controlling my life. Right. You know, the best I can do is co-create with life. And so this to me is the metaphor of the, the river and us with our boats and our paddles. It's like you can paddle and you can paddle a lot of different directions. It's usually best not to paddle upstream, which, you know, I think I've done enough of in my life. Yeah. So you just start, start to surrender more to that. But you also see that there are rocks and challenges in life, and you don't give up your autonomy in that sense. In fact, you get more autonomy because 
of how you're engaged and because you're clear in yourself that you can see this is a rock i don't really want to hit it if you're busy trying to swim upstream and paddle upstream or putting yourself on the shore or whatever you're doing you tend to run into more things because you're not engaged with what's real you're yeah. engaged with these illusions in your head so i have far fewer illusions i mean as of like this latest kind of shift because one of the things to me about being a human being is we're shifting and changing right there's this beautiful space of oneness that's always is it always embraces whatever is going on in us and it's like the more we rest in that the more we kind of shift divinely and beautifully and so right now i'm kind of in a more beautiful calmer shift which i'm really appreciating after having been cooked for nine years <laughs> you know it's this wonderful joyousness is kind of moving now but it will come and go so i don't hold on to that state all states are shifting and changing yeah your, your mention of the stream, you know, is a, I think that that nursery rhyme is very apt, you know, row, row, row your boat gently down the stream. Yeah. Um, it's like you, you're rowing. You're not just letting the stream carry you wherever it will into rocks and stuff. But exactly. But, but gently, you know, not forcibly. And you're going with the current, you know, because the current actually knows where to go. Mm -hmm. So it's a great little even the second part is good merrily 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 life is but a dream <laughs> yeah yeah i mean in my intuition has always been strong i feel very grateful to my family for allowing that you know it was not suppressed it was very much encouraged that you you trust your inner knowing and so one of the examples i love to give is uh in like april of 2010 i kind of had a feeling that i should get health insurance because i had just finished a contract and i didn't have it uh, and then, you know, a couple months later, I had this kind of feeling I should kind of stick around. I was thinking about going on this trip, uh, this dance camp thing, because I was really enjoying conscious dance. I found it a very useful turn, um, tool for understanding bodies and, and for opening bodies on its own terms. And then one night, you know, I, I suddenly come down with appendicitis, uh -huh. you know. And so this intuitive things that told me things that I couldn't possibly have known, you know, to have the health insurance. Thank goodness. And, you know, to be close to a hospital, a 13-minute drive to a hospital, as opposed to however long it would have been if I went on this trip. Yeah. Uh, you know, that was already 13 minutes too long. You feel every bump in the road. Yeah. And I was very, very happy that I <laughs> listened to my intuition. So that, you know, is one of many moments that reinforces there's this inner divine self. Trust it. Yeah. Yeah. As long as you can attune to it. And... Um you know not mistake crazy whims for some kind of divine guidance there, there's a sort of a subtlety and a discernment that is required i think yeah and yeah absolutely but, yeah so when you say your family was cooperative are you talking about do you have like a wife and kids or are you talking about your some earlier thing with your birth family i was talking childhood, childhood because family. that's where okay. so much determines you know how we think about ourselves and how we view life and what we're going to be open to and what we're going to be closed and so uh my biological family is very open to, you know, listening to your intuition about different things and just, just going with it. Yeah. So let's, let's, you said, just, and one other point ahead, about yes. intuition is, is as we work through different issues and our ego attachments, that does make intuition a lot clearer. And yeah. one of the aspects of it is, or there's many aspects to it, but it tends to be consistent. And it tends to not have to force you to do anything where the ego tends to barter or scare you into things like a lot of superstition mm -hmm. is this kind of scaring that something bad's going to happen and intuition doesn't usually do that uh, my experience with it is it tends to be just kind of this simple arising like go right mm -hmm. and it doesn't have a threat to it doesn't say that left is bad or right is better it just kind of has a sense you go right 
Yeah, I heard this. Uh, I read this great thing about, um, from Papaji, who was walking with somebody in Rishikesh, and um, he wanted to go a certain way. And the guy said, "Well, why are we going this way?" And he said, "I don't know." And they kept walking, and he said, "Well, you know, what are we gonna? Wh where are we gonna end up?" And he said, "I don't know." And you know, and it's like he, there was a series of questions like that. He had no idea why he was going that particular direction. But then they finally got to some obscure place, and there was some guy there who had just been waiting for him to show up, and it was the perfect sort of meeting with the guy that the guy needed at that time for his, you know, spiritual unfoldment and. And then, you know, they went on. Um, you know, Papaji had no idea why he was, was going that way, but his intuition was that clear and he trusted it that much. Okay, so it, sound, it sounds like you yourself have undergone a, a lot of healing and yes. purification and cooking, as we said, and, and I suppose are still doing so, although maybe it's gotten a little bit less intense. How do you facilitate that in others, people with mm -hmm. whom you, you work? Yeah, I mean, a lot of what I do is actually just kind of a focused relaxation. It's really, really beautiful that if you sit with somebody and you have them mm -hmm. breathe and relax with you for about 15 minutes, mm -hmm. things just start to come up on their own. And so when I work with people, I talk to them a lot about observe and report. You know, just tell me the raw data of like, you know, what are you feeling in your, physically in your chest or the emotions or the thoughts? Because as people relax, something very truthful starts to arise and there's an energetic connection to the work and so there's kind of a way where we like join together and so if somebody says oh i'm feeling nauseous in my stomach well if it's because of something you ate you can breathe into that part of you the nausea is not going away but if it's actually an issue then as they breathe into their stomach it tends to rise and changes so the nausea goes away now there's this tightness in the solar plexus or diaphragm and then there's this kind of heaviness in the chest and it not always moving its way up, but a lot of times it does. So it kind of it's like coming up into consciousness mm -hmm. and then it gets expressed. Sometimes it's like this realization. A lot of times it's just tears. And then as it goes, there's a sense of lightness, the sense of opening and clarity that comes after an issue like that is moved. And you can do it with, usually the trunk helps the best, you know, using with the, the body, uh, the center of the body rather than any extremities. That seems to work the, the most. And it's just interesting to, to watch how this just naturally wants to happen. So I think part of healing that I really like to emphasize is the human being is a self-cleaning system. It doesn't want to hold things down. It takes a lot of energy to hold pain down. Uh, and the more, more holding down we're doing is usually a sign of how much pain we have. And so that's part of the reason I think letting go and surrender is so scary for a lot of people is that as you let go, you suddenly, you know, find yourself out of control and that all this stuff that's been held down comes up. Now, that's not always going to be that way because you can, you know, everything's possible and some people can be very clear until the letting go really does bring a lot of peace and joy very quickly. But we've gotten really good at not liking ourselves in this culture. Um, <laughs> to me, one of the, the big problems is this sense of I am not okay. And we say this to ourselves in tons of ways. I'm not smart enough. I'm not good enough. I'm not pretty enough. I'm not attractive enough. I'm not wealthy enough, right? That's just that not, right? That's expressing itself in a hundred million different ways. And that to me is a, a central wound right now in a lot of Westerners. Yeah, I've heard the holding down uh, thing illustrated with the, the analogy of trying to hold a beach ball underwater, you know? Yeah, exactly. It's like just trying to get up and you're pushing and, you know, it takes constant effort to, to keep it underwater. 
Exactly. Yeah. And that leads to addictions, whether it's you're addicted to your work or sex or to substances or to all these different things that it takes so much energy to do that, to, to keep it down and to keep it numb because pain doesn't feel good. And then we don't like feeling numb. So then we start to look for more things to stimulate us again so it can feel good again. And it's just a really, really messy cycle. I think this is a really important point because, as you know, and as most people know, there's a huge opioid epidemic in this country yeah. right now. Mm-hmm. And when I hear about that on the news, you know, I, I think I, I think to myself, you know, well, these people they really don't get that how what was the phrase you just used that that the the body is a self cleaning or self purifying system, and that you know this stuff wants to come out, and if we keep stuffing it down, we're number one, we're not going to succeed, and number two, it's it's going to take more and more effort, and maybe number three, there's going to be more and more to stuff, and yes. <laughs> you know, and so the, the longer we continue to do that, the the harder it's going to get, and if if there could, this is one of those things, and I think there are others where if there could just be a greater cultural understanding of mm, the way yes. of the way we're wired and the way things work, it could save people so much pain. Yeah, yeah. And so I really want to emphasize for everyone who watches this that healing doesn't mean anything is bad about you. It's just kind of a necessity of the times to come into alignment. And this is the doorway to spiritual growth. So to me, spiritual growth is a whole other aspect. I mean, a lot of things are intertwined, Rick. I I create these distinctions that don't really exist, but they seem to be helpful to help people focus themselves on on what's going on. So sometimes the metaphor I'll use is like having two broken legs. And growth is more like being able to run. Well, you're not going to run on two broken legs. You have to attend to those, and there's certain things that you do. And so part of that is this kind of breaking down of oneself. And what I'm always hopeful to do through my work and my writing is to help people do that mindfully and as gently as possible for something that's going to get messy. And you need to accept that it's going to get messy because that's just how it goes. You know, things are pussy and gangrenous. Like, it's going to be gross once you get down there and you start putting bones back together. It's not fun. And of course, you know, there's the whole element of how much trauma people endure. I mean, depending on who you want to ask, I mean, the number of women who are sexually abused is somewhere between one in three or one in six, depending on how pessimistic. Mm. I'm usually in the one in four from my own experience as a teacher. Mm-hmm. And a lot of times that's repressed. And so, you know, there's, there's that element of courage that a lot of people need to have, depending on what's going on in their background, to be willing to, to step into a lot of really, really nasty discomfort as part of that beach ball. Yeah. As, as you rightly, uh, you know, use that metaphor, as that starts to come up because it's a powerful beach ball with a lot of emotion and energy to it. But in so doing, I mean, some of the people who feel the most empowered from this type of work are those who've had trauma. And I'm sure you've heard these stories before, because if you can go through that kind of hell, and it really is hell, it's going to take a lot to ever scare you again. Mm. You know how um, with an individual spiritual awakening as in your own case it provides the the space for things to start bubbling up and and clearing out and um and you have to kind of continue working with that process do you you feel like that there may be something going on on a societal level where there's some kind of more mass awakening taking place and it's resulting in more and more people having stuff bubble up that they may or may not know how to deal with I really don't know how to, I would even quantify it. I mean, maybe that you know? is, uh, accounts for the opioid epidemic, you know, I mean, uh, among other things. 
Yeah, I mean, I, I just don't even know how I would, I would quantify it to say, you know, that people are more or less conscious or, you know, more stuff is coming up. I think the, the bigger point really is just encouraging people to want to do the work, mm. that it is absolutely worth it, that no matter how bad you feel, you can walk through that fire. And that, that to me is, is the key point, because if we all en masse make that choice, then then I think that does become a reality that you do see like more people are conscious and, and that type of stuff. Um, I'm also concerned about technology and feedback loops because right now we can feedback the story we we'll want to hear about a lot of different things in a lot of different ways. So I don't know. All I know is I want to help as many people as I can mm-hmm. to become more conscious and to be free of pain. So let's say you meet with people once a week or once a month or whatever probably mm-hmm. most of them over Skype, some of them in person. Do you kind of try to get them set up to do something on a daily basis on their own? Because obviously just meeting with you occasionally may not be enough. For, for, no. Yeah. No. I'm, I want to be the catalyst in that, that equation that yeah. helps you kind of jump through things that you're struggling with or takes you to the next step of realization of healing of, of wherever somebody is it's always intuitive for the person that when i sit with somebody i want to find out what's working for them what they're drawn to and encourage them that way and sometimes what people are drawn to scares them and that's usually a sign that that's where you need to go whether it's like a book about a particular topic that's really upsetting to you that may be reflecting part of your own experience and that's where you have to go as your next step so i often think about this path also as rungs on a ladder you know, there's certain rungs are needed at certain times and they need to take that first step. You don't step on rung number five if you haven't stepped on rung number one. Mm-hmm. Uh, certainly, you know, I'm a strong advocate for meditation, um, but that's not the only thing that can really help people. It's just a way to get people to stop moving. And in a culture where we're so focused on doing things, getting people to stop moving is really key to even paying attention to what's happening aside. And I've usually been a strong advocate for journaling, where rather than talking about what happened today, uh, the journaling is really about asking yourself, why did I react to these different things? Because so many of our reactions are so unconscious, and we don't really understand the beliefs and assumptions that are driving those reactions. So that's a way to start to turn the lens inward onto the ego self. Yeah, this thing about stop stopping moving is important. I know. Um... I've always been a real busy guy, but you know, when I learned to meditate back in the '60s, it was such a relief to to stop moving. Mm-hmm. And, and and I continued to be a busy guy. I mean, I was a teenager. I got in. I was you know got into a rock band. I'm doing all this stuff. Um, but um, I always found it so rejuvenating uh, mm-hmm. to sit you know for half an hour or whatever I did um, twice a day. That it never took discipline. You know, it was something I looked forward to, not something I had to force myself to do. So if, yeah. you, if you give yourself a chance and if you do it in such a way that it actually works and allows you to really settle down, it, it's so easy to make it part of your routine. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, so that's a, that's a great way to work towards the relaxation. And, you know, it's a powerful thing with the human body. We definitely seem to interact through action and relaxation right? yeah. those kind of very fundamental nervous system things and i don't know totally natural them. cycle i mean look at the the cycle exactly. of sleep and waking so rest and activity is a natural yeah. cycle and if you can if you can introduce a meditation practice that provides really really deep rest and some types are said to produce deeper rest than sleep then it just mm-hmm. it just sets up another cycle within your life of rest and activity
Yeah, I actually kind of stumbled on a certain level of rest. I called it my yogi sleep when I didn't have any other word for it uh, during that 2008 year where everything was just kind of blowing up for me because I couldn't sleep well at night. Mm -hmm. I didn't understand exactly what was happening. I had a sense that a lot of things were being processed in my sleep. And so I would just kind of lie with my my knees at 90 degrees and my back flat Mm -hmm. on the ground. (laughs) And after a certain point, I would kind of go into a little bit of a trance sleep state. And after that, I would feel really great. And there are other ways where like meditation was a great great way to rest. But going back to this point around the action and relaxation, Mm -hmm. you know, there are other students where they really need to do some sort of action. So like something that can get them moving energetically, get something starting to work through some of the blocks. So it's different for each person. So kundalini yoga, breath work, you know, some of those different things can be very powerful movers. Uh, but you don't necessarily use that for the same, you know, for, for every student. And so this is why I'm always looking for what is true for this person. That's, that's really the key part here. It's like, what is true for the person who's sitting in front of me, helping them find that? And then, yes, in between sessions, I usually work every two weeks with people, they need to be doing them. If, if you're just trying to rely on, on me, that's also kind of part of this illusion that somebody else has something for you or fixes you or, or all those other things that is a, another big problem, uh, not just in the spiritual world, but in general. We look to others as this sort of kind of hero to, to fix it or change it or make it better. And we need to be our own heroes. Yeah. And you can make time for this stuff. I mean, Gandhi once said, uh, I have a really busy day today, so I'm going to meditate two hours this morning instead of one. Mm-hmm. You, know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, you can make time for it. And it, and it, it pays off in terms of greater efficiency. You actually have more time yes. in your day if you take some time out of your day to, to do something like this. You could use the analogy of shooting an arrow. You know, if you just sort of hold it and drop it, it's not going to go anywhere. But if you pull it back first, it'll hit the target. So, Absolutely. you know, being able to sort of go really deep and, and silent kind of creates a momentum for the rest of your day. Yeah, and I think there's some big neurological benefits to that. I think there's some interesting research that's starting to go on out there. And I don't know any of it well enough to... Uh, to quote it, but just an appreciation for how the human body works that, you know, we're changing our biochemical makeup, which changes how we feel and changes how we think and interact with life. And that, I think, is an important aspect of integration. When we start to use that term on the spiritual path to appreciate that certain things have to change in our minds, like physically in our brains, to think and interact with life a different way and changing how these different biochemicals are coming up inside and what they make us feel, because that's a lot of what emotions really are. We're really just labeling, you know, cortisol fear, right? That's what we don't like. I mean, this is more complicated. Than yeah, that. it gets very but I, Yeah, it's very complicated. But I just think it's important to appreciate that level of us. And that's another aspect why I think meditation can be really powerful in other spiritual practices, because we're reteaching that sort of inner space. And that's, that's the thing that we're usually most upset about. It's like if something doesn't feel good in our bodies. Mm-hmm. And so that's a powerful way to talk to the body. Yeah, most people listening have probably heard the term neuroplasticity. I'm sure you yep. have. And, yep. you know, we actually change the brain through, yes. through, through practices like this. And that, that's been measured and is continuing to be measured. And not only the brain, but even the genes. I have a book on the shelf behind me called Super Genes by Deepak Chopra and Rudy Tanzi. And they're finding that, you know, genes which were once thought to be unchangeable actually change mm-hmm. and, uh, in response to the things we do. So yeah. we really can, like you know, slow down the aging process and, and bring about all kinds of marvelous transformation physiologically, uh, which is important and is actually correlated with any significant subjective change in, in experience. Yeah. 
Yeah, and I really think this is important. This is my own theory, but I think it's really important for our own evolution, Rick, to, to move beyond our heritage of the reptilian brain. Yeah. And that fight, flight, freeze, and occasionally faint mechanism really drives most of what people do. Hmm. They're really just kind of acting from that. And I think this is something that the more people do their inner work, you just see that. It's like, yeah, this this whole need to be a billionaire or need to have this or all these things, those are just those deeper impulses still telling us how to live our lives. Well, we don't need those anymore. Back when we were wombats, we needed them, right? Because we weren't <laughs> going to think, I should go mate today, right? You know, we needed the sex drive. It's To me, there's really three fundamentals, you know, and I'm definitely open to, to hearing others, but it's nothing new. It's like the fear of death, mm-hmm. uh, aversion to pain, which is closely linked to death. But if somebody feels too much physical pain, then they'd rather choose death, unfortunately. And suicide's a big issue in a lot of a lot of areas of life, and that kind of gets overlooked, I think, at times. And then, of course, the drive to procreate. And to me, those are the fundamentals that genetically we do need to change because we can think now about whether we want to have kids or not. We don't need that drive in that same sort of way. We don't need to be told whether we want to live or die anymore. Um, but to me, that that's really, you know, the whole physiological impact is still very powerful in, in how people interact with life and how they see life. And a lot of people really are still stuck in seeing things as this, a friend or foe situation. And we're just so used to hiding it with all these other so-called rational thoughts that it seems to not be there. But in my experience, in delving inwards, they're very much there. And that, to me, is part of the breathing and the relaxation and all that inner work is to start to turn off some of those old genes, tamp down the amount of cortisol that hits me if I'm scared or triggered by something because it's no longer necessary and it doesn't help. I mean, one great example is uh, last November, uh, almost almost a year ago, I lost my apartment because there was an apartment complex fire. Uh, I was never in any physical danger, thank God, you know, for the people upstairs who knocked on my door and told me to get out. And actually, nothing actually burned in my apartment, but there's smoke damage. But during the moment, the amount of all of the neurotransmitters that said that you're, you're under threat and you, know, you should be scared was just consuming. And that gets in the way, of course, rationally thinking about what do I need to do in this situation? Uh, in hindsight, I feel like I did all right, you know, got my computer because this is kind of how, it, this is my work and how I do things and I got my car out of the way. But there are definitely certain ways where we all could have coordinated better if we weren't just like so much in that flight meta uh, mindset. So that's just another way I can illustrate the need to evolve beyond it because it really inhibits our ability to think. Uh, there's a beautiful talk about uh, neurobiology and trauma and I can't remember the guy's name, but it was on YouTube, and I really encourage people Rick, to look Rick at Hansen, it. Rick Hansen, by any chance? No. No, I think it was somebody from the University of Arkansas or something like that. And he talks about, in a traumatic incident, you know, the worst trauma it is, how it shuts down the, the front of the brain. And so you can't think in that way. And yeah. that's not useful to us in traumatic situations. We actually need to be able to think about them. Yeah, and actually there's been meditation research showing that people who are repeatedly, habitually traumatized the, the certain parts of the frontal cortex actually shut down permanently. Yep. They have functional mm. holes in their brain, so to speak, mm. which show up on magnetic resonance and, and so on. And and certain meditation practices have been shown to heal that, and you know, and so those holes disappear, and they begin to the brain begins to function more normally. And of course, this has a lot to do with the whole veterans PTSD situation, which ties back into the drug thing that we were talking about earlier. So there's just a lot of people walking around with, you know, a lot of pent up stress and, and 
neurological damage as a result of it, which is healable, and <laughs> you know, and it's not it's not something we should just drug away with you know yeah. this that or the other suppressant. It's something that should actually be healed and worked out and resolved once and for all. Yeah, I mean, in war, PTSD is terrible. Yeah, it is just absolutely terrible. You know, when I'm working with somebody and, and you're dealing with that, and I think that that to me where is a point where I really appreciate modern pharmacology, right? You know, where there's certain ways we have to calm someone down enough to even be able to get them to think in different ways to start to build up a meditation practice because it's so powerful. You know, this this whatever their their preferences towards fighting or running from something mm. that it just consumes them. I remember you know, one that, time oh I'm sorry, go ahead. Well I, I just think it's important to appreciate that, you know, that the trauma of everyday living with PTSD, not just like the initial trauma that caused it, is very powerful and it needs a lot of support from different sources. And this is another way where I encourage people to appreciate the whole spectrum of choices, that it's not just sit and meditate, but I think these other things become really key sure. in intense trauma. Yeah. I remember one time I played a, a game of volleyball with some friends, which I'd never played before. And it's like volleyball played on a racquetball court, so you're bouncing the ball off the different walls, and it's really intense, you know, and the ball's coming at you this way and that. And that, that, that evening when I sat and meditated, there were a couple of occasions where the ball was coming at me and my hands actually went up like this in meditation, <laughs> yeah. just unwinding that impression. So, I mean, yes. if you can get that from a game of volleyball, imagine what it's like being in battle um, yeah. and, the, and not having an opportunity to release that and having it pile on layer after layer. Mm -hmm. It really needs to get unwound. Absolutely. And, you know, we're, we're dealing with a history of PTSD. Like, that doesn't go away. It gets suppressed in the Civil War. It gets suppressed in World War One, World War Two. Korea, Vietnam, Iraq, right? Because we're not very good at dealing with it. I've heard some really positive things around some more uh, beneficial treatments that are coming to veterans in terms of the healing on that level. But still, like what happens in, to the family when somebody comes back and they're just drinking themselves to numb themselves and how that starts traditions that go generations of alcoholism or you know it's just traditions of physical beatings because they start acting it out on their son mm -hmm. or their their daughter you know so these are cycles of suffering that we have to end and it's tough for anybody who's been stuck in that you know in that familiar yeah. familial generational suffering but it's really really necessary because otherwise we just keep passing it on yeah and we have the tools to end it and it may seem elementary to us you know because we talk about this stuff all the time but it's not elementary to the the common understanding in society no. and i think it you know perhaps shows like this and people doing what you're doing and so on can make it more commonly known shouldn't yeah. should need to make it more commonly known yeah, and it's just all we can do, you know, Rick, and anybody else who's watching who's who's a healer is just inspire people and let them know that they can heal it. Mm -hmm. Because when you're facing this stuff, it always takes you down to the most basic, most primal part of your brain where everything feels impossible. I've had it with like simple issues, you know, compared to, to PTSD. And it just feels like it's never going to end, feels impossible, and it just feels sometimes like you're dying. Yeah. But then it passes. Right, and then you find that you're better for, for having gone through it and you've released it and, and you're clearer about life and happier with life. And the same thing applies to PTSD and these other more difficult things that people 
really can move through it. You really can. It's difficult. I really encourage people to think about creating a broader support system. The more difficult the issue, the more support you need. It's not just a teacher. It's not just some therapist, but it's also you know, a few close loved ones. It is your spiritual practice because you have to do this for yourself mm -hmm. and probably a couple other things and to a certain degree of faith in God. Like I think this is where faith is really, really useful for people to, to believe that there is something deeper and more powerful that is supporting them through this real, real awful ordeal. Yeah. I'm glad you mentioned that, and I, I think you know, thinking about it and talking about it and better understanding it as we're doing now, I think helps to culture that faith. It's, you know, it, it, if you start sort of thinking deep, more deeply about the way things are actually working, and and kind of appreciating, we were talking earlier about intuition, and mm -hmm. you know, if you can sort of tune in and realize that life is not just sort of random, arbitrary, capricious, but is actually intelligently orchestrated that can have a huge impact on your way of operating, you know, on your, yeah. and on your psychology. Yeah, and I, I think, you know, it's definitely something that's really important the earlier on your, on your path, mm -hmm. because you're not going to have evidence yet in your own experience. So having that faith that, okay, this feels terrible now, but it will pass. This too shall pass. And I don't want to be glib about that because it can sound a little glib, this too shall pass. Because when you're right in the middle of an issue and you're feeling terrible and you're feeling all this fear or suffering, uh, if something physically happened to you, your body can be experiencing those fears. Kind of like what you said, where like your arms go up yeah. like that, right? Your body remembers these things. That's one of the ways where I help people get into some of these traumas or especially repressed memories that your body remembers what happened, even if your mind can't. And that becomes a crucial doorway into really working through some of these different pains. And so the more you can move through it, the more you know in your experiential life that you can, but at the outset, faith is just so critical. You know, one thing I do, I don't know if this would work for everybody, but in addition to other things I do, one thing I do when, you know, there seem to be sort of troubling things that are bothering me or something like that, I look at pictures of galaxies. You know what I mean by that? It's like you get a sense of the vastness of the universe and yeah. how small your life is and how, yes. how there are probably trillions of little dramas going on, you know, many of them much worse than yours. And it just kind of gives you this, broadens your perspective. I just find that helpful. Just thought I'd mention it. Um, yeah, the, yeah. I've been really yeah. enjoying the World Science Festival's YouTube channel. Mm. Uh, they have some wonderful talks about things like what we're talking about, neuroscience and cosmology. Ah, I should check that out. Um, a few questions came in from someone named Emma in Italy. And this is the first question is one I was thinking to ask you a few minutes ago. Um, does transmission happen with your students? If we're talking about you know how energy moves between people, yeah. I would say that happens all the time with all of us. That we're all energy, and that that's always kind of moving around. It's just a little bit. I would like to believe clear. You know, when I I sit with somebody with the intent to to love and to support and to to hold them. So, yes, but there's also a transmission back. I, I don't consider it a one-way conversation. It's just usually the conversation coming back to me. I feel like I've integrated, you know, uh, or it just doesn't trigger anything to be pushing me in any particular direction. I don't know. I mean, I'm still kind of learning about that too, Rick. I mean, energy is so wondrous and so intelligent. I just do my best to sit down and show up. <laughs> yeah. When I think of transmission, I think of it more, not, not so much in terms of like energy zapping going from point A to point B, but rather a, a sort of an attunement that takes place. Mm -hmm. And the, the attunement, as you say, is, has, would have a mutual influence. 
But, um, you know, if we use the example of logs, if one log is burning brightly and the other is not burning or is a little sure. damp, damp or something, you put it near the bright log, the, the burning log, and it dries out and starts to burn. So there Absolutely. is definitely some kind of influence from proximity or interaction. Yeah, I mean, I definitely agree with that, and I've definitely experienced that too. I just don't want to overemphasize my role because I think it's so important for people to appreciate their own energy, their own power. Yeah. And really what I'm kind of like, you know, getting that fire started, what I'm hoping is that they're coming into their own natural achievement, not moving to necessarily my vibration or anything right. like that, just going to whatever is appropriate to them. So you're not going to be blessing people with peacock feathers anytime soon, I take it. No. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think people like uh, plants at times, that we're all different plants and we need different things. So that's another way where uh, I think the metaphor of like, how do I approach this person? You know, what is the energetic support that they need? And sometimes I'm more aware of it, you know, that I'm talking to them from here or from my heart or from that deep gut level uh, and connecting with them and helping them move into that particular energy in themselves. Okay, so this person asks, Emma asks three questions and they get progressively more difficult to answer. The, the, okay. the second one is, how many of your students have become awakened in what period of time? Yeah, I mean, I don't really even think of it in that term. You know, what I think about in the, those terms is, are they happy? Mm -hmm. Do they feel clearer? Do they feel more free to just live their lives? And I've seen that with a lot of them. I don't really keep statistics on it because it's just not how I am. Yeah. And ultimately, it's kind of up to them to decide, you know, how successful it is and not me. I mean, I've got testimonials page that can, <laughs> if you want to see what some of the people are saying about it, but yeah. I really don't think of it in terms of numbers. I just think of being present to whoever's in front of me. Also, the way her question is phrased, it, imp it, it implies that awakening is some kind of static, ultimate kind of thing, you know, that you know, some, some terminus point. Uh, as, right. op as opposed to some shift, and there will probably be other shifts. And, yeah. yeah, I mean, as you mentioned, very, in the very beginning, spiritual waking is generally just like the opening salvo. It's like the prologue. It's like, surprise, yeah. life is different than what you thought. <laughs> right. And as far as time goes, you know, it's best to just not even think about time, but just what is necessary, what is needful for you right now? Always coming back to right now. The ego likes to look into the future. It's like, when I get to this other point, then everything will be fill in the blank. Uh, and for a lot of people, what that ultimately is is a kind of safety. It's like, well, then I'll be safe, right? I won't be hurt. And it's like, well, our energy is never hurt, but they go through difficulty. And sometimes that's where we need to go in our lives. Some people are going to go towards difficulty because that's what they're called to do. That's where they're going to thrive. So the cat in the desert. Some people are going to go help, you know, be diplomats with war-torn countries. That's not a comfortable place. You know, and they're going to leave the comfort of maybe like the three-car garage and the great pension plan and, and all that stuff because that's not where they're thriving. That's not what's true for them. Yeah. Uh, so that, that to me is the more interesting thing is how do people feel alive rather than how we label them as awakened or not. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, now, the third question is, I think, impossible to answer, but I'm curious as to how you'll answer it. After death, how does, after death does it make any difference if one dies enlightened or not? Yeah, I'm just so much more focused on the now because I think we stink at living in our lives right now. And that to me is another kind of kick the can down to down further to like look at something in the future, want to know that the future is going to be safe in some sort of way around yeah. what happens and, and, you know, after we die and things like that. So that's never really a concern of mine. Mm -hmm. I appreciate that that's a question that matters to other people, mm -hmm. uh, but I don't have a particularly great answer for it other than come into this moment, live in this moment fully. 
you know, and if there's ways that you don't feel fully alive in this moment, investigate. Yeah. I mean, the way I would answer that question would be to say, whatever death is, you know, you'll handle it better if you've learned to handle life, you know. <laughs> <laughs> well, you just want to have enjoyed life to some degree if you can, right? <laughs> right. Um, okay, here's a, here's a couple of questions from, or it's a two-part question from Laura in the United States. She asks, part one, can you please elaborate on how you experienced this, quote, blowing up time? Were you aware of being in awakening while you were going through all this? Or did you feel that initial awakening had been lost and life was really hard and scary? Well, I think it's kind of a combination because you have the ego self that thinks that's being tortured. <laughs> you know, it's being cut apart and thinks things are going badly. But I also, as I've mentioned earlier, had a very strong sense of intuition. So I never felt the awakened space was lost. I didn't necessarily have as good as words to describe it in 2008, 2009, as I do now. But it really was a sense that it was always there. It's always kind of part of the backdrop or the canvas that's holding all the different colors that are coming across my particular palette of life. So there is that fear that comes out of the ego, and that's part of the processing too. So there's an important aspect of knowing when we're triggered and stepping out of that trigger so that the deeper fear that's getting processed comes out because we can certainly choose to be upset and i definitely chose to be upset but i didn't realize it and that's unfortunately is the nature of the ignorance that i was living in so i didn't understand what this process was that this was like the beach ball coming up and a part of me was scared of the beach ball so that kind of creates another beach ball yeah and this is now we got two beach balls and this is not a whole <laughs> lot of fun but i was aware that there was a shift going on. I was aware that this was part of healing and growth, but I didn't fully understand it. Okay. Um, here's part two of her question. We've kind of covered this, but I think you could probably elaborate a little bit more. Um, how would you describe your awakening now? Is there a self? I, you do have a, a, a thing I was listening to about no self, so let me see mm -hmm. what you say about that. How are you defining within yourself that you are indeed awakened? I think it's just kind of that space of connection. You know, it's just it doesn't go away. Mm -hmm. After having realized it in 2007, it's there. And it's moved me all on its own. Uh, self, depending on how we're using that term, right? If there's the ego self, uh, and the true self, I suppose, is kind of like the soul for me. You know, that's, and, you know, drawing my attention towards that space. And it almost kind of feels like drawing my attention to the back of my mind. But the more I'm there, it's kind of like that space comes forward. Mm -hmm. That's well put. Things, yeah, that, that just kind of feels like that's what's moving the show. Yeah. I mean, do I have an ego? Yeah. I'm aware of it. And I'm aware of the different preferences and choices. But I like to make the different distinction between unconscious ego that doesn't know what it is, doesn't know it can change, has to be the way it is. It's very much a tunnel vision and a conscious ego, which knows it's made up and there's more flexibility with it. Mm. So if before the unconscious ego has to do A, whatever A happens to be, the conscious ego knows that A and B and C are choices and it has access to all of them. And so you can choose A again, right? You can go back to some old patterns and old ways of living, but you're also more aware of the repercussions mm. of going back to doing that. Like I could go back to eating the way I used to. I went through a whole lot of eating changes. My body was very vocally telling me to change uh, during a number of years. But then I would be more conscious of the repercussions of it. And I think that's an aspect of consciousness that anybody can, can really engage with. And so I don't like to talk about awakening as better than anything. And many people who awaken weren't searching for spirituality or interested at all. I actually was. 
And so, you know, being thrust into this sort of stuff isn't necessarily something they want. And they don't necessarily engage with becoming more conscious. So we can all become more conscious of ourselves and that leads to, to greater peace and truth. Good. Um, so probably some more questions will come in as we go along, but um, there were certain, you, you've written a lot on your blog and uh, I've read, I don't know, six, seven, ten of your articles and uh, there are certain ones you recommended to me. And so I thought maybe just as little stimuli to conversation, I would just read the titles of some of these articles. I've taken some notes on what was within the different articles and we can just chat about those ones which you considered important. Um, mm -hmm. So for instance, there's one entitled Life After Spiritual Death and mm -hmm. Truly Living. And I have some subpoints here, but that title alone should get you started. Yeah, I think there's this phase of healing that happens after awakening and it's been something we've emphasized. But then as you continue, because life continues, and I really don't see our human experience as an endpoint other than death, you start to grow. And, and that's kind of that following the river. And it's funny that you just kind of run out of words when you get to that point, because you just see the river and it's like, well, this is what's here today. Uh, the, the sense of setting goals you can do or not do, that's kind of like that comment around the unconscious ego or the unconscious ego would have to be one way or the other. Uh, the conscious ego, well, we can set goals or not, but we don't need to make them happen. So there's this beautiful way where we continue growing like the apple tree, right? It's past that point of the seed opening and then it's past the point of pushing up through the dirt, right? And so think of healing, like pushing up through the dirt just to get to the light. And then it starts to go through growth cycles. And at times, you know, it loses its leaves in winter and at other times it's flowering and creating fruit, things like that. And so that to me kind of is what I'm talking about there, this beautiful rhythm that starts to unfold in us that we just keep following and keeps growing on its own. And that's really what I mean by like life after that spiritual death, life after that breaking down and sloughing away a lot of the old ego. And it doesn't mean that you don't run up against new parts of the ego or old parts as you grow and your branches push out. You do. I mean, every now and then somebody has such a profound awakening that they lose all attachment and that's it. But mostly anybody I've met who've had awakening, uh, it's a it's a process as a yeah. human being. Even some of the famous ones that were real blowout awakenings like Ramana or um, Eckhart Tolle or Byron Katie, they went through years afterwards of processing and integration and, and stuff. Yeah. So, yeah, and then you just start growing on your own. And it, it's so beautiful. It's no different than like the tree or how our bodies grow. We don't, we'll have growing pains at times as we explore new things that we can now do that we couldn't do before. But it just is so smart. Yeah. <laughs> doesn't need me at all. <laughs> there was a paragraph in that article that I was a little skeptical of. Um, you were talking about the beautiful wildness, wildness of awakening mm -hmm. and you said to the mm -hmm. unconscious ego, the awakened person probably seems wild and out of control and the awakened self is wild and beyond domestication. It'll break social rules because they're not real. Someone in this wildness can propose to a stranger on a subway as easily as to <laughs> stay happily in seclusion for 30 years. All of life is open to them. And, you know, I'd, I'd kind of say, personally, I'd say yes and no to that. It doesn't mean that all awakened people are going to be sort of iconoclasts running around doing crazy things. And like you have some of those crazy wisdom dudes in India that are, you know, sit on a dung heap and throw stones at people all day. Um, and, and I do know a fellow who, you know, a spiritual teacher who proposed to a woman on, her, on their first date and they were divorced within a year. So I just don't know about this crazy out of control thing. I, I think a person can be highly awakened and appear to be very 
well regulated in terms sure. of their life. It's not like we're all going to become crazy men. No, that's not the point of being crazy. It's like the wildness of the river. Right? The, the river flows and pulls in certain ways. And the loss of the boundaries that we have to be a certain type of person where the ego self has to be socially constrained and has to operate in certain ways. So it's the opening of the whole book, the whole playbook. It doesn't mean we use the whole playbook. I don't think I've proposed anybody after getting off subway before yet in my life, but it's not to say that I wouldn't. Yeah. Right? That, that's that intuitive nature, the same way that I had no idea that I would have appendicitis. Right. There's no way I would know that. And if I was still just kind of stuck in the rigidity of my ego self, I'd say, you know what, I'm going off on this trip anyway. Right, because that's, that would be the old unconscious part of me that's planning everything, controlling everything, and thinking mm -hmm. that he's in charge. So that's really kind of what I was kind of encouraging people to appreciate. It's just this expansiveness that we don't allow ourselves when we're stuck in the ego and stuck in our pain. Yeah, and in a way, going off on that trip would have been the wild thing to do. Hey, I'm just going, and you know, I don't need health insurance. Whereas <laughs> you, you actually did some sober things, you know, careful things, and that saved your life maybe, or saved you a great deal. Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah, it may, maybe, you know, an appendix exploding inside you is a bad thing. You can, can die kill from you. Yeah, it can. Um, okay, so um, here's another nice article. Um, melting into silence. Mm -hmm. um, I have some sub points here, but um, I like that phrase, melting into silence. I'm going to riff on that yeah. a little bit. Yeah. It, it's funny that the more we talk about some of the depths of these things, the more words just don't work. It really is it's a space of energy. And so it's just another way to, to talk about presence. And there's this amazing presence in all of us. And I just, I like to keep emphasizing that because I think people have been taught that they're not good, right? Going back to what I was talking about, that feeling not okay, or that these things are beyond them. I mean, thankfully, no, right? It doesn't take a rocket scientist to understand this stuff. Thank goodness. Like we all have access to this beautiful, beautiful place of silence. Usually when we first start touching that space though, we're still caught up in the ego. We're caught up paying attention to our bodies and how it's feeling and the emotions that are coming. So the, the stepping into that, that silence at first, you're just really more still focused on the noise. But as we kind of draw our attention away from the noise, the noise calms down. Uh, sometimes I talk about the heart and the body and the energy and the mind. It's kind of like puppy dogs. And the puppy dogs just need to be trained. And when you go towards silence, that's the best trainer, right? That divine presence inside us, Rick, that just starts to say, no, no, here, sit, sit, stay, right? You know, to all the rest of us, it's like, no, I'm running here and I'm running there. And I'm, you know, just like all over the place with our thoughts or with our emotions or like, I got to do all these 15 errands today. And so that coming back to that science, melting into it, these other things start to calm down. Mm. Actually, using your puppy dog analogy, if, uh, you know, let's say you had a litter of young puppies and they're, they're just all over the place. They're running, yeah. all, running all over the room. And, but let's say you wanted them to be in one spot. The thing you'd do is put a bowl of food there and then all the puppies, <laughs> they'd all be like that. So, um, you know, the silence that we're referring to here is very charming to experience. Yeah. And if the mind is scattered every which way, if we can give it an opportunity to move in the direction of that silence, it says, ooh, this is charming. I, I think I'll just uh, settle right into this and, and, and enjoy it. And so the many-branched and diverse you know, sensory activity just converges back like a tortoise withdrawing its limbs into its shell, to use a phrase from Bhagavad Gita, and um, one rests there.
Yeah, and and I like that the food metaphor because it is such a nourishing place. Yeah, yeah. You know, there, there's a way that we're very starved on a lot of levels, and one of the ways is our own love. And so, when I start to talk about presence, uh, I that to me is one. This is where all the words start to be the same thing. Where I start talking about consciousness, love, and truth, right? That becomes all the same. Versus in the space of duality, right? They're clearly different things. <laughs> You know, when somebody is helping somebody versus someone's fighting somebody, right? That's not what we call overt loving kindness of any kind. But stepping into that presence is this coming back to this this deeper nourishment. And that nourishment is so important because it clarifies what we really need when we're not allowing ourselves to be in that space because we're already connected. We feel disconnected because we draw our attention to the, what the puppy dogs are doing, scattering all over the room. But when we, we come back to that, we realize we already are. And that's a powerful thing. That's the beautiful thing about spiritual truths. They're not really anything you have to do. They're just reality. Mm -hmm. And so drawing yourself back to this truth that you're already connected to yourself, you're already connected to everything, is powerful nourishment for the rest of us. And then that clarifies how we want to live our lives. So this is what I call going inside out, mm -hmm. that we go inside to that nourishment. And then you look at the world. What do you really want? What do you really want in this moment? Yeah. Here's one that I think people will like uh, and re be able to relate to. There's a couple here that are sort of related. This one is the uncomfortable truth about being open-hearted. Mm, yeah. And uh, we've kind of touched on this about how we're all stressed out and closed, shut down, and that that needs to be unwound and reversed. But um, let's talk about it a little bit in terms of the heart here. Yeah, I mean, often when we think about the heart, we're only thinking about feeling good. Mm -hmm. And so... The concept of being open-hearted is usually usually has a connotation that it's going to feel good, that we're just going to feel lots of love and connection to ourselves and to others. But part of the nature of this world right now is not happy. And being interconnected to the world means feeling pain. Now, part of being open-hearted that helps us is by noticing when we're triggered, when a pain inside of us is triggered, as opposed to blaming something else around us. And we're very good at blaming the external world for internal feelings. And that's a really important distinction to make, that we're choosing most of our feelings, putting aside kind of the old stuff that needs to be processed. A lot of it is just choice around how to respond to what somebody said or done or whatnot. And so we go towards those triggers and go towards that pain to, to process any deeper pain that is sitting down there and to let go of these different beliefs. And as we get clearer, then it's easier to be with people in pain. Is it fun? No. <laughs> you know, it's kind of like stepping outside without a jacket when it's like, you know, zero degrees. It's like, you know, you feel that. Right? That's part of being open hearted. That's the uncomfortable truth of being open hearted. But when it doesn't trigger anything inside, it's not as difficult to be with. Yeah. And then you wrote another article, which is kind of related to that spiritual awakening and enhanced energy sensitivities. And yeah. about a month ago, I did an interview with a guy who wrote a book about highly sensitive people, which mm -hmm. I think is, um, you know, fairly common among spiritual aspirants, spiritually inclined people. They're very sensitive. And there's an interesting sort of um, conundrum in terms of becoming more sensitive without becoming more vulnerable, you know, uh, it seems to involve um, somehow developing an inner strength in commensurate with our increased sensitivity. Um, mm -hmm. Otherwise, you know, we'd, our, we'd be like an open wound all the time, figurative, figuratively speaking, and just unable to function in the world because every little, every little thing would disturb us. Well, so, I would really come at that slightly differently mm -hmm. because it, 
to, to go to what you said around being like an open wound, actually that to me is why we feel pain when we're highly sensitive, mm -hmm. is that there is some sort of level of woundedness or something going on that's getting activated by what we're feeling around us. Because we're around all kinds of energy all the time. Most of it doesn't bother us. If it did, we couldn't walk through a grocery store. We would just be out. Can't. Some people, yeah, you know, they try to walk through a grocery store and it's like they're just being bombarded by every little subtle stimulus. Yeah, that to me usually suggests that there are certain levels of work about themselves that they need to address that's been just sitting there and it hasn't been, been dealt with. And coming back to the breath is one of the most powerful ways and tools to be open, to be in that space of vulnerability. And I really don't see vulnerability as bad. Uh, the more we let go of fear, that sense of vulnerability is just openness. And somebody can shoot an arrow at you and if there's nothing for it to hit, it goes straight through. So. Whenever I'm talking to somebody who's highly sensitive, I really emphasize that you have to do your work. The more you can go inside and let go of any of these hidden issues that may be going on, like the silent wounds we've mentioned earlier, the easier it is to just be open. And the other side of that is that's like opening our eyes to a new level. So highly sensitive people also understand a lot of things that are going on around them better than other people. To me, that's no different than having better eyesight. Like, you know, I have to wear glasses. I don't have the best eyes but other people have better eyes than me. And so that's just a new way of understanding life that can show you things that are gonna be invisible to people, it can show you different relationships and possibilities and connections that you may wanna have because you can sense so clearly. It can show you different jobs that you don't want to be in because you can sense what's actually going on versus what's going on in your job interview. So I wanna emphasize that there are positive sides to this because a lot of times when you're highly sensitive, all you can see is the difficult things because as we mentioned, there's a lot of pain in this world and being open to it means that's kind of what you're feeling on the more common level. Yeah, that's a good point. And uh, I know a lot of people when they've learned to meditate or something, start practicing it, um, they become sensitized to things that once, right. once they, you know, they might've smoked cigarettes for instance and didn't think anything of it. And all of a sudden they begin to feel like, this isn't very enjoyable, look what this is doing to me. And so, so, the, and so the naturally the habit drops off because it becomes repugnant. Um, yeah, they can feel the truth of what they're doing to themselves. So it is very normal for people as they let go of the ego. The ego to me is a kind of barrier to life. And there, there's real reasons we do that. So that's why I never want to demonize it. It's just like it's a function of trying to self-protect in a lot of regards, right? To self-protect and to acquire. That's usually its main functions. And so as we drop that wall, we have to get used to like, what's going on around us you know so it makes connections like these a lot easier but it makes other things also more available to us and some of that is pain and that of course helps us do more inner work and so it can be kind of this funny catch-22 and i know i've experienced and many of my students have where you drop a layer and you feel more open but now you're feeling more issues that can like hit you in different ways and so that to me can be like a positive cycle though where you just keep learning how to drop and drop so you are clearer and clearer yeah, and yet the, the point I initially made, I think that ideally as this happens, um, something rises up to counterbalance the, the openness or the sensitivity. And, you know, I've met people, well, such as Ama, whose picture is over my shoulder here, who is mm -hmm. one of the most perceptive people I've ever met and one of the most open people in terms of feeling other people's pain and, you know, you know you'll see her in tears if someone comes up to her with something. And, um, mm -hmm. So really feeling it, and yet it's sort of she's kind of super fluid it just passes through yeah. and and isn't held on to for a moment um it's just like exactly. experienced fully and then on to the next experience 
Exactly. Yeah. And another way to look at it too is as people get more sensitive, it's kind of like getting a, a new radio station on your dial, but it's playing simultaneously with the other ones. Mm -hmm. So it's just, you become accessible to these other, we'll call it frequencies. I don't want to get into that too, too much, but just that sense of like being able to pick up more information. Mm -hmm. And so like, you can imagine how much noise that is. So at first I really also encourage people to be calm. Let's just work through it. This is part of a transition as you learn to kind of control the dial better inside. So like, it's been like that for me a lot. Where like, if I'm going through a shift and I'm like walking through a grocery store, it's like, oh, <laughs> you know, I was like, this is too many radio stations. But then a couple of days pass and, you know, I've kind of learned how to adjust the dial and I can be with it. Mm -hmm. Okay, so um, what else is, can you think of anything we haven't covered that you want to make sure to cover in this interview that you going to kick yourself uh, in half an hour if we don't cover it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I think it's been a beautiful conversation, but I really like to keep coming back to appreciating that everybody has their own wisdom. I mean, that, that's really what I work to do is to help people find that own innate wisdom, because as you do that, as you open yourself up, you are changing the world around you. And I know a lot of people are concerned about the direction of the United States, of the world and, and how we're engaging with life and your inner work matters. It really does. And so when people go inside and they process pain, they become role models for others, even if you don't say anything. Like, I really believe people are all actually sensitive. We're just so used to holding beach balls down and numbing ourselves and avoiding ourselves that we don't realize how sensitive we are. And so just having that openness, it touches people in everyday life, touches people standing in the grocery line, touches people in the other cars as you're sitting in traffic. And that's just a powerful thing. And it can't be understated. I feel like we live in a culture, once again, kind of going back to the hero metaphor, where we're always emphasizing what one person does in some sort of over-the-top way, rather than the beauty of collective inner work and the, the change in the field of life, of energy and connection. And the more we do that, when you're highly sensitive, if everybody's vibrating with love, you know, then you love being highly sensitive. That's an amazing thing to be a part of. No one would have any problem with that at all. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up. I mean, you know, that poem by John Donne, uh, No Man is an Island. Mm -hmm. And then he says later, ask not for whom the bell tolls, it tolls for thee. Um, we're all interconnected and, and people may or may not be aware of that, but there's absolutely no rigid boundary around any one person that separates them from all other people. Uh, yeah. And so, you know, whatever we do to facilitate our own awakening or evolution, we're there's a ripple effect that's going out to to influence the whole society. Absolutely. Mm. You know, and it's, it's amazing. I'm sure there's some cool mathematics that can be done about, you know, how few it actually takes before like greater amplitude and greater change starts to, to happen. And I don't know the math well, well enough. I, but can, I, I can give you some math. I mean, okay, in, the, in the heart, for instance, one percent of the cells are pacemaker cells and they regulate the, the coordinated beating of all the other cells in the heart. Yeah. And um, in a laser, if, if the square root of 1% of the photons align with one another coherently, it creates a phase transition in which all the other photons line up with them and it, it becomes one, as if one coherent beam of light, one coherent photon, um, even though it's many photons. And there are other examples like that too with magnetism Absolutely. and, and uh, superfluidity and, and other such principles. But um, there are a lot of examples in nature where a small number of things or, or units, um, if they achieve a sort of a coherence or synchrony, uh, trigger the rest of, of the, the system to do the same. Yeah, yeah. And I think that that's a great 
level of inspiration because I think that also can encourage people in their own work that, you know, what you do matters. And it doesn't take that many of us to really start to have a larger impact in ways that we'll never really know. Uh, I think it's also important to let go of the idea of what it should look like because this life is vast and there's a lot of forces moving in it. Yeah. And all we can really do is go within and, and do our best and face ourselves as best we can and find the supports because there is support. You know, there are some things in life that we have to do on our own and that's just how it is. But there are other things where we do need support. And I think that's also a dance of like knowing when to call in that extra support for whatever's arising and when you just have to go off and be with yourself and let it work itself through. Yeah. I think there's another principle here that's worth mentioning, and that is that the, the subtle is more powerful. And uh, there are so many examples of that in nature. But, you know, I mean, it's really important to do all the stuff on the manifest level that needs to be done in terms of environmental issues and, um, you know, technological progress and things that can be done. Um, yeah. But also, if we can, in addition to whatever we're doing on, on a more manifest level, if if we're learning to function from a, a more fundamental level then that it's more pivotal it's more influential than just functioning on the surface so, yeah so we we do have even if we're just sort of you know living our own private life and you know raising children or something not having much interaction with um on any with any environmental or economic issues or anything like that we can be having a, quite a profound influence on on the whole society which we we may not even be aware of but well, we can't emphasize the, the importance of raising children because that is the next yeah, generation. Yeah, I didn't mean to ex use that as an example of something trivial. No, I didn't no, mean to I, trivialize that. That's, no, know, I didn't think you did, but I think some people yeah. do, actually. Yeah. I think some people do trivialize and say, well, I'm just a stay-at-home mom raising a couple of kids. Like, that is huge. Yeah. That is, that is changing the next generation, the next generation of the world and how they're going to interact with life. So some, some of my parents' students really get that. It's like, wow, you know, the more I do my inner work, I can really help free my children on an even deeper level to, to live their life in any way that they want to. Because if we don't, then just more of the same issues get passed on. It's kind of like the same clog in the toilet in the family bathroom stays there and it just gets shittier. <laughs> yeah, and they'll grow up and be gone soon enough, you know. So, um, you know, it's a very important time when, when you can really be with them and... and help to mold, help to culture their lives yeah and to go back to the silence thing there's a way where it does start to manifest in action it's, it's this kind of like moving forward that and I'm, I'm definitely still experiencing starting to understand and also still not understanding how it just moves me how it kind of like steps forward and says okay this is the thing I'm going to do in, in life. And it's a very powerful thing, as you're mentioning, when that space of awareness comes forward and you take action to do something, to be an activist or to raise children or to just manage your garden, right? There's, there's a quality of liveliness and that, that energy comes into the world through your action when we allow it. Good. Well, that might be a good note to end on. Um, mm -hmm. So thanks, Jim. It's been a lot of fun talking to you. Yeah. Yeah, thank you very much. I really appreciate work. I mean, it's just so important to to have these conversations and to to add to the internet in a, a very positive way to to give people some other things to really sit with and support them. And it's so beautiful that technology can bring us together like this. Oh, it really is, boy. I mean, when I first started using computers, it took several hours to download 250k. 
Right? <laughs> you, you couldn't have done Skype or anything like that. We're, no. we're doing megabytes every minute. Uh, so it's, it's really a beautiful thing that you know, we're able to do this. And you know, people around the world are able to watch it live. There's 100 people watching right now. And um, you know, it'll be there for probably long after we're gone. Yeah. yeah it's great. OK. So let, let's tell us a little bit about what you have to offer in uh, terms of meeting with people and Skyping with people and all that. Oh, sure. So I work with people one-on-one, -on -one, one hour Skype sessions, mm -hmm. and we just kind of come and sit and see what comes up. Uh, I've got a lot more information on my blog, which is spiritualawakeningprocess.com, where people can read about that. But it's very intuitive. Things come up. Sometimes it's intense. Sometimes there's laughter. A lot of times there's tears because there are a lot of beach balls we've all been holding down inside us that are going to bubble up. But it really is done with a space of deep love, confidentiality, and connection. And it's just wonderful to see the students who embrace that as a catalyzing point go back for the next couple of weeks, do their own work, and come back. And just oh, the, the connections are beautiful. I mean, some of my students I've been working with for three years or more. And it's just so amazing to watch them come into this liveliness. So I think that's kind of the simplest way to talk about becoming more conscious is you're coming more alive. Good. Okay, so I'll be linking to your website from your page on bathgap.com. And You've written a book, but I guess you wrote it so long ago that you're not like real crazy about it or anything, right? It's like yeah, well, everyday spirituality, cultivating and awakening is really a great book it, to help people understand the whole of themselves. Mm -hmm. uh, definitely, it's great for people who are starting their spiritual journey, or they need to kind of reevaluate because yeah. sometimes we get stuck just kind of learning in our heads and we have ignored our heart and body, and so that that to me is a really a doorway sort of book. To help you go deeper in certain areas. So somebody who's been meditating for 30 years might actually find it useful if they've not really engaged with their hearts. Mm. Uh, but as far as you know, where my expression is, you know, my latest blog posts are, are going to be closer to what I'm talking about. And I'm getting more interested about phases after healing. What is it like to have two healed legs and, and to run? Mm -hmm. Right? What is it like to really live from that space of clarity? Yeah, that that's exciting to me too. It's like, um, I mean, every stage of the journey is significant, but I'm always intrigued with the potential of what awakening can, and you know, actually be in its fuller and fuller expressions, not only for individuals but for society. I, I think it's ex extremely exciting and has tremendous implications for our world. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. All right, let me make a couple of closing remarks, uh, general ones. Um, you've been watching an interview, obviously, on Buddha at the Gas Pump. Uh, there have been well over 300 of them, and if you want to check out previous ones, go to bathgap.com and look at the past interviews menu. Um, you'll see what's scheduled coming up under the future interviews menu. There's an audio podcast of this, if you'd like to subscribe to that. There's a button there. You can sign up to be notified by email each time a new one is posted. And you can also sign up or, you know, subscribe on YouTube and YouTube will notify you each time a new one is posted. Um, and a number of other things if you explore the menus. We appreciate people's support. If you feel like supporting it in some way, there's a PayPal button on, on the site. So thank you for listening or watching and we'll see you for the next one. Thank you, Jim. Thank you, Rick.